Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? All right. I mean, thankfully, I'm not currently the pet of a cosmic uh, entity <laughs> who thinks it's Napoleonic time for some reason, so I'm doing pretty well, considered. Well, you're not the pet of anybody as far as you know, but that's the thing with godlike beings. You can never quite tell when they're around, which means that this week we are going to be tackling the Squire of Gothos. And as always, we are doing it with a guest. Well, in fact, this time, not one guest, but two. We have Abby and we have Natalie with us. So say hello. 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 How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. Uh just we've been going through and barreling through all of the the trek and uh right off the top uh the dynamic that we're working with here is that we similarly have uh an expert and noob dynamic where uh abby grew up with the series as the expert and uh this is my first time watching through so i'm excited to kind of talk about it in that capacity fantastic well it's lovely to have you both on board and it's lovely to have um our 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 capacity doubled essentially if we have two mm -hmm. noobs and two well i allege that i'm an expert i'm not really convinced that that's the case but let's let's stick with it for the time <laughs> being shall we you've wrote you've written a book on voyager so you're <laughs> i mean even it's not this years we're discussing uh, well i really can't play yeah written two books on voyager but we'll just gloss over that for the time yeah being. i All mean right, if anyone's qualified you don't okay. have to play humble fair, fair fair enough no more no more humble bragging okay fine well what we always do at this point is that we do ask our our guests uh what their history with the show is so we have a we have a little introduction to that there as a as an expert and a new but uh would you guys like to uh maybe tell us a little bit about your relationship with star trek and how you've both come to the series yeah, I, so when I was 14, um, my first exposure to anything to do with Star Trek was uh, JJ Trek. We got it from Netflix and watched it, and like I, immediately I was completely on board. Um, and so we just started getting the original series through Netflix discs and watched the whole thing that way, and then did all the movies. Uh, Into Darkness happened, and we all know how that went. Um, <laughs> and, and so yeah, I've I've only done... The original series and all the jj trek movies um i started on next generation was then like okay i'm not waiting two seasons for this to get good and sort of left that behind but i'm a really big fan of the original series it held a very dear place in my heart um especially um especially all the characters just are, are really fond memories in my head and it's been great to to revisit it and bring someone new to it so yeah and in in my case as i mentioned uh i had not consumed a single thing trek related prior to uh starting on the series this year uh have never watched uh, an episode in full had never watched any of the movies uh be it the offshoots of the original series or the jj ones it's mostly i feel like mostly my exposure to trek related stuff is just kind of consuming trek related media and having that kind of inform my perception of the series uh for years and years be that stuff like galaxy quest or like certain episodes of like futurama and that kind of that became my main way of uh understanding what some aspects of the series are but it's been it's been enlightening for me to go through it this way because i feel like i have a much firmer grasp on the sort of actual content and uh the way that the series is now 
Okay, that, that, that seems fair enough. Um, I, I have to say one thing at this point, which I shouldn't do because it will immediately detonate any credibility I have. But um, we were talking off microphone about um, Star Trek V and the fact that I find it quite <laughs> a defensible film. I think Star Trek Into Darkness is the most defensible of the three J.J. Abrams films. Oh, I don't, boy. I don't think it's the best one. Let's make that completely clear. I think I think it's one where the script and the actual finished product pull in two completely different directions. Um, but I think as a, as an aesthetic sort of extension of the Star Trek universe, it works, even if the end result is is um, less than perfect. Anyway, before I do detonate my credibility <laughs> any further as an alleged expert, let's just crack on with this episode. Kev, would you care to give us our usual summary, please? All right. Um, the Enterprise is cruising along when uh, suddenly Kirk and Sulu are pulled out of the ship. Uh, McCoy and a few other people go down to investigate and they discover a godlike being, yet another one, in <laughs> in control of Kirk and Sulu. And he's created this um, elaborate, as I mentioned, sort of, I guess nineteenth century, eighteenth century. I'm bad with centuries, but so is the it's episode. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, based off Earth in the past, because of the time difference and between how you can observe Earth and what is actually going on. More on that later. But um, because of this time difference, he is like trying to cozy up to the crew and get them to like him. He winds up uh, after several escape attempts that all wind up with people being pulled back to the planet. Um, eventually Kirk just offers to duel him one-on-one and Kirk manages to stall for time long enough for uh, this godlike being Trelane's parents to show up and give him a stern talking to and take him away. And then they're free to go. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yes, there's nothing like an episode which resolves with itself with somebody's parents turning up. That's always uh, <laughs> always an excellent way to wrap things up. Hey, this is now the third godlike being that we have encountered in <laughs> the space of 17 episodes after uh, Charlie X and Where No Man Has Gone Before. So we're, we're kind of hitting a groove here. A uh, Corbinite maneuver, I think, would qualify as well. Maybe not yeah. totally godlike, but definitely. Uh, I, I, I'm not Santina. inclined to. I'm not inclined to put that in the same category. It's a very powerful alien, but everything there is just tech. It's just like he's mm. got a big ship and he's got everything else. Whereas here, there's. I mean, we have the machine behind the mirror, but there's no real sense that that uh, Trelane is anything other than just basically a god. Um, but anyway, fair enough. Anyway. We can we can argue over categories as we go through the episode, but let's uh, let's get general impressions out of the way first. So, uh, Abby and Natalie, why don't you give us your uh, your general impressions? How did you find the episode? Yeah, this was always one of my favorites from my first run of the series, and revisiting it, I was glad to see my memories uh, vindicated. It's this is probably the the purest use of the childish god concept the series ever did. You know, there's 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 no pussyfooting around. It's just uh, from the first scene in, we're just in the situation. Um, and it's 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 pretty much confined to just two sets the entire time. There's the the big castle and the ground set and the Enterprise, and that's it. It's it's very self-contained, and because of that, it's it's very well structured and paced. And of course, the central performance is brilliant. You know, instantly iconic. Um, so much so that you could argue the next generation decided we're just going to do that for a supporting <laughs> character. Um. Yeah, I have a lot of fun with this one. A couple blips aside, which we will get to, I think that it ranks very strongly in the the original series episodes, certainly in season one episodes to date. 
yeah i this is one that i had uh, a blast with it's uh a lot of my enjoyment of the series so far has been kind of uh divvied up into ones that i've been uh either just really kind of finding fascinating to chew on or ones that are just pure fun and this is this is one that mostly falls in the latter camp for me in that i think uh what abby's talking about about the pacing of this episode this is where i feel like season one is hitting the stride at this point where it's Mm -hmm. really kind of they're really nailing the pacing in a way that like some of the earlier episodes felt a bit flabbier with and i think part of its benefit is the fact that it like so immediately grounds you in the situation and it's so constantly focused on these like immediate problems and dilemmas and arguably like hijinks going on and there's this constant back and forth between the planet and the ship that i think lends the pacing a nice kind of like energetic sort of kick to it um in a way that like some of the other episodes where they're kind of confined to a planet might like sometimes kind of wear on a bit but like this one uh i don't know it's it's very fun and as abby was mentioning uh trelane's performance is just so the defining factor of this episode that i think it it really carries the whole thing. Um, one of the things that I've been really endeared to as we've been going along is the number of just weird guys that the series is pulling up and Trelane is definitely like mm-hmm. in the upper echelon of like <laughs> Star Trek weird guys. Um, and uh, to to the endings credit, uh, one of the other things I wanted to note is that I think um, this is like one of the better kind of resolutions that kind of has almost a sort of like... T- not quite twilight zone quality but like the ones where they really kind of use the the ultimate twists and resolutions to resolve matters and put things in a new context which i always find like really fun in terms of lending a cap to what the episode is all about yeah i think the take of it being like they're really figuring out the show and getting into a groove is a good one because um i mean we've talked about balance of terror and then last week the galileo seven um just being these episodes where it really feels like these are some of the first episodes where Star Trek has figured out Star Trek. Uh, the balance of terror, just knowing what the show can do. Um, same writer, very different energy, which I find very interesting. <laughs> but, uh, and then Galileo 7, though, specifically was like a very character-based episode that you could only write when a show had a certain number of episodes under its belt. And I think Squire of Gothos, I don't, I think this premise could still be done even with as like a one-off short story or something like that, as opposed to Galileo 7 needing to be a Star Trek episode with Star Trek characters. But um, I think this, it still benefits so much from the cast really feeling themselves and how their characters interact and how they would react to certain situations. I think it's like Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Urasu, like all these characters are really into their own at this point. And that really helps elevate this episode um, beyond what's already a good like premise and well-written story. I think it's interesting that you mention uh, whether this story really needed to be a Star Trek story. I think it probably is one that you could get away with doing it not as a Star Trek story. But if you did, it would probably be in something like, like Astounding Science Fiction magazine. Right. And it probably would have been written by Theodore Sturgeon at some point anyway. So, you know, I think the, I think the overlaps there with that kind of classic sort of Silver Age sci-fi are very much there. But I don't mean that as a, a criticism at all, quite the opposite. All that stuff about, uh, you know, the show hitting its stride and just being able to get on with doing the thing that it does is uh, 
you know, a real indicator of just how quickly this show has come together. Okay, we are up to episode 17 now, so there has been plenty of time for things to bed in. But there's a difference between bedding in and then really just being able to run. And there's such a such a sense of enthusiasm, I think, with The Squire of Gothos. That, like, even although it's basically barely science fiction, it's pretty much kind of sci- uh, uh, sort of fantasy at this point, or at least science fantasy, let's say. Um, it it still has such a kind of energetic sort of vibe to it, and and you know it just manages to capture that enthusiasm, that kind of like first season drive, where literally anything seems possible. And I think that's one of the great benefits of the original show, and particularly the first season. The universe just seems so vast and infinite, and like the fact that one week you your your main concern is a crash shuttlecraft, and then the next week your concern is some uh, weird space god child thing, and then a week after that you're wrestling an unconvincing lizard costume. Like it's all part of the same spectrum, but that's great. That's the joy of this show, and 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 you know, uh, Squire of Gothos is just such a great way of kind of creating those kind of weird aspects of the galaxy i love it for that reason yeah and i think as you're alluding to earlier with q and next generation a character who i obviously know more through cultural osmosis than having <laughs> what little i've seen of the show um this is such an influential episode like not only is it sort of drawing on what's around at the time but this is going to impact a lot of trek and other related media going forward like this this trelane is such the template for like a godlike being and what it and raising the questions of what it means to be like playing with things that are sort of beneath you and what do you, what to do with power and how to use it properly i think spock even says pretty much to that effect how when he lays out the themes of the episode he has an issue with people not understanding like what power they have and using it improperly I, i'm heavily paraphrasing here but it's a really standout line in terms of laying out sort of what ha- um what this episode has on its mind yeah definitely that that moment with spock just calling i think i think the line is i i i have no i have no use for for intellect without uh fuck, i can't remember either but <laughs> yeah it's in the middle of an episode that like like we've been saying is is a lot of just like enthusiasm and zany hijinks that's one of the defining spock moments and it's really cool how the show has gotten to a point where it can balance character and action side by side like that instead of having an episode that focuses on one or the other yeah and it's it's also i think a really great display of kind of the writers at this point figuring out how they can balance the different modes of writing itself just because that Mm. the line is so concise in uh how it's constructed and so to the point but it doesn't detract from what's going on and it also to that credit feels like uh if we're talking about this being a trek specific thing that's kind of one of the moments that like really defines it and endears this episode is that to me is the fact that uh spock's kind of positioning in all of this especially how trelane is like uh just really out to get him at that point in the episode feels very much of a piece with how kind of spock's relationship to all these other beings has been up to this point and really reinforcing his worldview in a way that i think the episode does a great job of uh, explaining in this particular context without detracting from everything else that's going around. I pulled up the line because I think since we've referenced it so much, it's good to have it just verbatim. Uh, I object to you. I object to inflect without discipline. I object to power without constructive purpose, which is a line that goes really hard. I mean, <laughs> credit to the writer. Oh my God. It's 
yeah, it's a really good line. Nemo delivers it perfectly. And I think it does sort of underlie how this is, even though he's kind of in the background for a lot of it, kind of like how Kirk was in the background for Galileo 7, this is like a great Spock episode for what he does. And I I like uh, them calling, like Trelane sort of calling out his different background from the rest of the crew in a very derogatory way. And the rest of the crew just like, um, try like they don't. It really emphasizes the rest of the crew doesn't feel that way. How outside of unless we need the uh, stock person who doesn't like Vulcans <laughs> in the episode, uh, the stock guest star. Uh, everyone else is a regular player, like really respects and admires Spock. And the fact that they'll even when McCoy gets on his nerve, like Spock gets on his nerves, and he'll like argue with him, he'll still like stand up for Spock against this guy. And it's McCoy just... only commits microaggressions out of love. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's just a really good um, basis and character conflict that they have little, like a little subtle seed throughout the episode, which is great. I also like the riposte foot to it as well, which is, oh, Mr. Spock, you do have one redeeming feature. You're ill-mannered. So it's not just about, you know, uh, this is a real flaw that particularly the first sort of uh, season or two of, of Next Generation is very guilty of. Um, but it's not just about showing how incredibly superior or how better our crew are or how much more they're involved. Like Trelane is allowed to have the opportunity to get, you know, like one-liners in. He gets riposts. He gets the opportunity to to be able to stand up to himself because honestly like he's right spock is being unbelievably rude and that's kind of <laughs> it's just funny to see that pointed out even although obviously we're on spock's side and and spock is completely correct it's it's uh it's a testament to how well the script is written that it's able to kind of walk that very thin line between having our characters you know called out for their their uh their flaws without that flaw then becoming something that we judge them for um i think that's such a wonderful balance in in that whole kind of sequence it's one that i think is not always the case i think that was true when we were talking about the galileo 7 last week as well where there was a slight contrivance to some of the arguments um but here that doesn't feel like the case as well and there is a sense that even although Trelane is clearly a child and explicitly said to be one by the end of the episode. He still has enough smarts that he can spar with the, the, the crew. He still is, for an alien child, he's still smart enough that he can he can find ways to, to deflect, he can find ways to have a, a witty one-liner or whatever it is, and that adds so much to his characterization. Uh, to this end, that everything that we've been talking about, I think if we're talking about kind of how this is really sort of emblematic of Trek and where this season is. I also wanted to point out uh, just Kirk's characterization in this episode, which is to me, it feels like the, the real end product of having him be developed over this, the course of these 17 episodes where he's allowed to kind of uh, get in these like witty one liars, but he's also able to work through um, outsmarting, uh, Trelane and conversing with his crew and making these plans he's spotting basically the holes through Trelane's facade like very early on in the episode in a way that I think is I, I think the the way that the episode is really kind of uh charting you through his mindset and in a lot of ways in these episodes how his approach to any of these kinds of scenarios varies based on whatever the weakness of uh 
whoever he's up against is or whatever sort of circumstance he finds himself in is I, I think this episode is doing a lot with that. And that proactive approach is very different from Charlie X, the earliest gobbing <laughs> episode where the entire thing is just Kirk being a shitty father and not wanting to get involved with this kid. Um, which it, it, I had forgotten how off early Kirk is compared to where he gets where like there's there's some of the wit there, but there's none of the warmth that comes in later, none of the wisdom. And it, it's it's really good seeing how, how far he's come and how much they've managed to nail that balance here compared to where he was early on. Yeah, it's interesting to compare that episode specifically to something like Miri, where it's like a like complete 180 in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a 180 Miri in a lot of ways, like quality-wise. But... <laughs> I like um... Miri. William Shatner throws a child. <laughs> that That is not, one of the highlights. Not far enough. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, what I also like about Kirk's attitude and the attitude of the whole crew specifically here creates such a fun dynamic that like Trelane is coming out so like hot, like just so uh, over the top and goofy and everyone is almost stone faced the entire episode. It is Mm -hmm. a really fun dynamic that from moment one, everyone is just tired of his shtick. Like (laughs) there's no pleasing, like there's no like appeasing to him. There's no, oh, maybe we should try being nice to him and see how things go. There's no, oh, let's roll, let's go along with this for a little while. They're sick of it the second it starts and they just keep getting sicker of it. It's just a very funny dynamic that the whole crew has with him. Yeah, especially given the number of episodes before this where like the the pattern is like Kirk will try to hear out reason or like he finds Mm -hmm. something endearing about like this new stranger who has these ideas whereas like this one it's like the second the dude plucks kirk out of the ship he's like you're dead to me <laughs> i mean when, when you've encountered your 17th alien threat i feel like it would start to wear on you a little well especially right. since it's only two episodes since they've done shore leave so they've already had um just in the very recent past experience with having to deal with these kind of weird fantasies being conjured up uh out of nowhere and it's impossible not to think in the back of kirk's mind he's going oh god not again it's just come on, what? Oh God, it's a medieval castle. This one, right? All right, right. Where's the idiot that's in charge me. with this one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, um, yeah, just like his complete inability. But I think one of the one of the things which is um, very successful about the Squire of Gothos, and I think this really sets it apart from certainly from Charlie X, and and pretty much from where No Man Has Gone Before is that um, even although, you know, almost everything that Trelane does is sort of uh, childish and immature and just sort of annoying and, you know, some little kid playing dress-up, there is a genuine sense of threat behind him. And that's a really difficult balance to strike because there is, you know, Kirk is cautious in his dealings with Trelane. You know, he he orders people to put their phasers on stun and he, he understands very clearly understands just how dangerous this idiot can be. Um, so there is a real sense of threat about what Trelane can achieve. And that's genuinely impressive because we don't have like a bunch of red shirts that get killed off. We don't have big explosions. We don't have any of that kind of stuff. It's all really through, well, both through the, the writing and particularly through uh, William Campbell's uh, performances, Trelane, where he is this kind of ridiculous pantomime over the top villain, but underneath it, you know, he can he can really do anything he wants, and that that balance again between the the apparently kind of light and frivolous stuff which is going on on the surface and the very very real danger they're in, 
is incredibly well handled. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also really want to talk about the direction of this episode. I think, I mean, specifically from an effects standpoint, as it were, there's so much like very simple, very easy in-camera stuff they do that is so effective. I mean, just like the jump cuts of having characters disappear or having everyone like get yanked down from the ship to the dining room and it's just achieved through like like a smash cut. It's just mm-hmm. so effective. Um it's, it really is just like sometimes the easiest, simplest, and oldest solution to a problem works. It works really well in just like disorienting you as the characters are being disoriented. Um, it doesn't, yeah, I think, and just the way a lot of that is staged and deployed and edited is just, wow, this is like really effective for this time, especially. Yeah, I was especially impressed with uh, during the the climax, the gates that he throws up to block Kurt's, Kirk's way or something mm-hmm. that like, even in like prior episodes, I wouldn't have thought like their like budget and effects capacity able to handle something like that. Well, oh, it, yeah. uh, there's a lot of things in this which were done ver- for very specifically budget oriented reasons. So, for example, Kirk and Sulu being taken from the ship happening as jump cuts and then particularly their... Um, uh revival on the planet they were meant to be turned into statues that's what was meant to happen so originally Mm -hmm. they were supposed to have uh like taken uh cast models of uh george (laughs) decay and william shatner Mm -hmm. and like had them pose for it and then they kind of like crossfade from the statue into kirk and sulu being there and i'm like they just took one look over that's way too expensive what we do have is a green light and the ability to cut in camera that'll do no right that's the budget that's that's thousands and thousands of dollars shaved off the budget great go for that and so a lot of the effects and a lot of the way that this episode is put together is it's that thing about you know necessity being the mother of invention they didn't have the money to do everything that they wanted to be able to achieve and yet like i completely agree with what you said kev like these are really simple craft kind of tricks but they are so effective like the fact that it's a green light and and william shatner and george takei just standing really still it's Mm. it works it's incredibly effective It, it it feels of a piece um, and I'm pretty sure that's probably also a better special effect than if they'd really tried to make both of them look like statues. It would be very funny if they had had the visual effects budget and then they're like, wait, you bought a harpsichord for the set? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm just looking at Memory Alpha for some of these, of how they did some of these effects. And yeah, um, some of it is just people standing very still and that is very creepy and effective. Uh, the bars mentioned earlier that block Kirk, that's just a split screen effect. That's all it is. It's really like homespun but just works because and like the way you make effects that cheap look good or at least have that little impact is with good direction good cinematography good editing it's a really good team working on star trek i think we we will shout them out occasionally when it's notable and it certainly is here but i think throughout this show i think we've noticed a lot of good like visual tricks yeah i mean even in the toward the end of this episode when the set has to be converted into like a mock courtroom it's just they do a lot with just using sets that have already been used in the episode and just dramatic lighting and slight costuming changes and you get the full effect of it they don't they know Mm -hmm. at this point that like you don't need to like go all out in order to have the effect of it come across in a lot of time a lot of instances 
I love that courtroom scene so much. I think it's incredibly effective sort of change of pace. And it, it's also like a real change of style as well. Like a lot of the stuff with uh, Trelane in the castle or in the in the grounds, a lot of it is that kind of kind of, you know, uh, Errol Flynn sort of like sword play and, and all that kind of stuff. And then it kind of suddenly cuts to this court scene where, I mean, it's, it's almost sort of expressionistic. It's like German expressionism. Like, like it, it's only at the last moment that we see the noose. Everything else is just the shadow of it on the back wall. And we have like the camera sort of pointing up at Trelane as he kind of looms down with his sort of periwig on and all the rest of it. And then Kirk standing in this incredibly sort of minimalist dock. It looks like it was sort of designed in about 1910 or 1915 in Berlin. And I love that about it. You know, that's such a, it's such a weird thing to do in an episode like this, but it's also exactly what you want to have in an episode like this, because it's genuinely, I fight shy of the word surreal because it's, I think that's a lazy way of just saying different. Um, but it does lend a slightly surrealistic edge to the thing where we, we do have this thing. Now, admittedly, when the noose does eventually clearly get wheeled on, <laughs> sli- slightly unconvincingly, I kind of wish they'd just like, had to find a way to put the shadow around Kirk's neck or something. That would have been amazing. So it's a bit cheap when it's eventually clearly somebody with a pulley just mm. squeaking its way across the set. But I just, I love that sudden change of style from that kind of, that sort of like 1940s or 1950s daring do kind of movie to this like weird kind of piece of German expressionism. That's such a, such a brilliant directorial choice. Yeah, it's, this is such a good episode for lighting direction set mood as well. Because like you said, I mean, we talked about that courtroom scene and, but just everything around it is just so light and airy in like a very fun way. Um I think it really helps the comedy episode shine that it is just very brightly lit sets with the very like nice looking decor and contrast with Campbell's performance. Yeah. It's all those tone shifts work really well. And then it's, it's a episode with a tone wide enough to allow for that ridiculous ending. It's such a silly (laughs) way for the conflict to be wrapped up. But I think the tone has been calibrated well enough that, it has room for that ridiculousness to follow on the heels of that high drama of the execution scene. Yeah. And, and not to, not to keep like using Charlie X as a punching bag, but it is very funny how they, they punch manage... away. <laughs> it is very funny how they managed to essentially take pretty much the same ending right down to the same sort of glowing face effect, uh and, and weave it into this episode in a way that feels far more organic. I think because of, again, the ways that it's been kind of navigating these tonal shifts and the ways that the episode has kind of primed you to think there's something bigger than like Kirk's initial assumptions. I think that the the episode is continually building to that conclusion in a way that feels so organic that when it does eventually hit that final change, it feels part and parcel with everything else that's been going on. What if Kirk were like, okay, this is a godchild. There's a 50-50 chance he has parents, because I know how this works. <laughs> busy long enough, there's a chance. God. It's also, I think, I think compared to Charlie X, also, one of the reasons that this works better is, like, Charlie X was trying to make big, like, capital S statements about the nature of adolescence and fatherhood and that sort of thing, mm. and not really doing a very good job at it, whereas this one is just, what if there were a little guy and he were weird? 
like it, it it doesn't it still has the thematic underpinning there but apart from like spock's little monologue it doesn't feel the need to have that choke out the rest of what the episode is whereas in charlie x it's just a, a, a constant mix of teenage boy being creepy and then adults trying to psychologize why he's being creepy Whereas this one, I think, um, I one of the things that I wanted to talk about is uh, this is as we've been talking about just a, for a lot of the span a very fun episode, but it's also I think Trek has now kind of comfortably gotten in a situation where it's able to tackle some of these like bigger themes that you see in underpinnings of science fiction in this era uh, in a way that feels very organic without really detracting from it, and uh, it's funny that. Um, I, I saw that the origin of this was a uh, witnessing children playing war when, whereas like to me, the, the bigger sort of giveaway is the fact that right away, as soon as they're like beamed, as soon as they beam down and confront Trelane, the first thing he's going on about isn't necessarily even like his childlike wonder. It's this admiration for like, uh, like wartime leadership and uh, mm-hmm. the ability to like wage conflict and like uh, he's he's immediately waxing poetic about this kind of brute force in a way that feels very much it, it feels almost kind of like military fetishism even beyond the the kind of child's like perspective of it yeah I the underpinning of him like observing earth from the past as a like a warlike culture and then the contrast of the Enterprise crew being on a peaceful mission is, I think, it's like such a good thematic underpinning. It is really um, resonant. And again, they don't highlight it much, as you were saying, but it works so well in enriching the episode just because I love those little moments where he's like, well, why? Oh, you have a gun. That's fun. But that's like the only fun thing about you. Why aren't you displaying weapons on the wall? Why aren't you acting aggressive with me? It's like, he almost like is trying to goad them into a more physical solution. And instead, like, again, they're just shutting him out like on every emotional level. And that's almost more infuriating to him. Um, yeah. I, I even calling himself general is such like a good tip off for that. Uh, retired, of course. But besides that, he's um, yeah. His military fetishism is such like a good motif throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that they don't really overplay the child element until he's actually you know getting told Mm -hmm. off by his parents until that point we don't really have that much understanding other than he's got a bit of a short temper and kirk can find ways to manipulate him and i think that's quite clever as well because it does mean that when we get the final revelation of trillane being a child a literal child it's not something that comes out of nowhere we understand why Kirk has been able to take an apparently incredibly powerful being and kind of goad him into doing things. Like the, the the duel is a perfect example. Like he really pushes Trelane until Kirk gets the thing that he wants. Now, admittedly, smashing the machine didn't work. It doesn't destroy everything. Um, but it was a good it was a good stab from from Kirk's perspective, but it also shows that Trelane is is fallible and fallible in a way which is consistent with the fact that he eventually turns out to be a literal child. That's that's really good writing. However, it does bear mentioning. Um, it's maybe best not to look at the whole. Oh, um, you know, I've observed Earth through a light telescope from nine hundred years ago yeah. too closely because nothing <laughs> about that stacks up. Not no. slightly, not even remotely, not even in any way, shape, or form. Especially because why would you 
you're you're a god. Why would you even need the telescope? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those ideas. I I often have ideas of this like like this. Uh, you think, oh oh, that's a good idea, and then you look at it and go. Oh no, no, that doesn't work at all. No, no, put that, put that back in the box. And it's it's just one of those things like, oh, that'll be great. That's so clever. Like, yeah, nine hundred years ago. Um, ignoring the fact that Star Trek is set in the twenty third century, so nine hundred years right. ago. Um, why would he know about Napoleon? Just right. to take or, one of the random examples, or strikes. Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, being <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe Trelane is just bad at math. <laughs> yeah, or, or a big musical theater fan. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I that was the, also a sticking point for me. It was the number of years. It's like, wait, because at first I thought, well, it must be ninety. No way, it's nine hundred. And then I'm like, no, it said nine hundred <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's it's just a premise. Like like you said, it's a it's just a very like quick solution that I didn't think too hard about just to um, make it seem a little clever and then just get the aesthetic that they wanted to have. It's like, um, Oh God, I had an example, but it's, it's like propping up something with like the flimsiest bit of like thing you can find just because you know, it's not a permanent solution, but it'll have to do in this situation. Cause you can't think of anything better. That's how I feel about the telescope thing, getting them to their sort of aesthetic. Yeah. And they, and they would have just been like, okay, no one is going to be watching this show sixty years from now with a with a something called a wiki where they can consult the lore and determine <laughs> right. the, rest of the continuity errors. This is a week to week show. Who cares? Yeah. If I have besides the chronology, which I don't actually have a complaint about mm-hmm. because it's funny, the 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 main like quibble that I have with this episode is the treatment of of women, but specifically the treatment of Uhura really kind of sucks. Um, Uhura, you know, is, is one thing that's really notable about her in early episodes is that she's quick-witted and like she always she, like she's able to hold her own. You know, there's her, you know, having sort of sparring matches with Mr. Spock. There's sorry neither with Sulu and all that. And then in this one, she's transported down to this planet um, and referred to as this Nubian prize, and she just sort of sits there like staring and doesn't get a chance to. I understand what they're going for with you because know, of course they aren't uh, they aren't endorsing this behavior. But like just sort of having her sit there and take it really sort of strong in my mouth, especially knowing that um, in rehearsals, um, the the actor behind the squire accidentally said Nubian slave, at which point Michelle Nichols goes, I'll kick you in the ankle. Um, definitely lends a certain tinge to that scene where it's like, oh, this could have been handled differently. And that's the, the one really sour taste in my mouth of this episode is how it 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 lets her just sort of sit there and be victimized and not actually be able to defend herself in a way that I feel like in a better world, she would have been able to. Yeah. Especially because I I can see how it slots into a lot of the major themes of the episodes and the way that like Trelane is characterized, but it's also, um, it's also something where uh, it just never really ends up like justifying itself beyond that. It never ends up being something that like you couldn't have just gleaned from the ways that the episode is positioning itself. Um, and also the fact that then Uhura is basically for the rest of the scene hypnotized into doing Trelane's bidding and doesn't really get the opportunity to assert herself in any sort of way divorced from how how she's being treated in that moment. It, fe- it definitely feels like she's being used as a prop in that scene more than anything else that definitely kind of stuck in my craw yeah i do agree i think yeah i think the treatment of uhura is unfortunate but i i also want to sort of i want to differentiate between the treatment of uhura 
and how good Nichelle Nichols is. Because I think she does wonders with a role, which indeed is quite patronizing towards uh, towards Ahura. And particularly when she's sitting at the harpsichord, she has that, you know, I, I think Trelane says, oh, you know, you can play it. And she has that, the way that she delivers that, I can't play that. It's such a lovely delivery of the line. And it's clearly um, not the way that it's really scripted. I, I assume it's meant to be, I can't play that. But like Nichelle Nichols finds a way to play the line, which doesn't make it kind of passive. It's like like, like the contempt that she has for Trelane comes through with through in the way that she delivers it, or, or you know that kind of like unfounded assumption or whatever. And it's just a, it's a lovely way that she delivers it, and she does that consistently with the material um, that she's given. And I do, I do agree. I think the writing for Ahura is is poor in this episode, but it is lovely to see her actually be on screen, not just behind her desk. Um, and I do think Michelle Nichols does a good job with some pretty iffy material. Yeah. I, I mean, Michelle Nichols and I think, I mean, she's not in this episode or in any more episodes we're going to cover, but Grace Lee Whitney are just such great cast members because they do what you're describing. They really bring a lot to thinly written material. And I, yeah, really is why Nicole's stood out all these years and became like an icon as much as the rest of her castmates, if not more than some of them, because she really held her own like, in the face of not so forgiving writing for her. Yeah, I know you, Natalie, you were commenting on specifically, like you really love her, her body language, right? Yeah. The, the ways that um, I feel like the ways that she like really makes her and the ways that she projects herself on the bridge all the time is like really kind of, compelling to she she kind of everybody else is very sort of like uh professional and like perfect posture and she's almost kind of i i admire the fact that she's constantly like hunched over her terminal like a gremlin it's like she's she, <laughs> it feels really kind of telling about how she's playing the character a lot of the times her her kind of body language and reactiveness to certain situations yeah i couldn't agree more and i think you know it, it, it's no surprise that the the waste of both ahura and Nichelle Nichols will be one of the ongoing themes that this podcast will have to return to. Um, but at least at least here she's getting some decent screen time, even if the material isn't that great. Um, I feel very sorry for uh, Yeoman Ross. Apparently that's, that's that Yeoman's name. Um, All the Yeoman have our names. That's just how it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were trying to trick viewers into being like, no, 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 this is the same woman. Don't don't worry. It's they should have done a they should have done a Darren thing and been like, no, this is this this is this is this is Grace Lee uh someone else. It's fine. It's a terrible role that's badly written and also fairly badly delivered, I'm sorry to say. Like they've even given her the beehive haircut. I mean it's not yes. Great. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, hey, you know how we had this regular and we wrote her off for really, really appalling reasons? Here's another one. Um, <laughs> it's not good. And that's not really the fault of this episode, I guess. Um, I guess Paul Schneider was just basically stuck with having to do a, a you know, a control F replace on, on uh, <laughs> Yeoman Ran with Yeoman Ross. Uh, must have kept him up all night. And uh, <laughs> that's a shame. Um, but it is it, like, I really don't it's in, in such a strong episode like you know um i'm trying to avoid the word dolly bird here because that's the most 1960s thing of all but that's basically what she is in this episode and again it's it's kind of a shame 
that the females, you know, contingent of the crew are reduced to basically just being a bit of glam. There's a particular scene where Kirk um, has her on the bridge and, and William Shatner really looks like directly at her breasts before looking at her face. It's very, very obvious. And it's really bad because so much of the episode has been about kind of getting away from, you know, the old assumptions and getting away from like the way that humanity used to be because we are more evolved and we are more sophisticated. And all Kirk can do is stare at her breasts. It's not good. If the squire had just appealed to Kirk's horniness, they would have they would have found common ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been such an easy win for him. <laughs> I will say that if it had to happen, it almost is probably better to be a, a random one-off character than just have Rand get humiliated yet again. Like, if there's mm. any character who the series just doesn't know what to do with, it is consistently just what if we what if we put Rand in awful, embarrassing situations and sometimes made a joke about it afterward. Like, and especially at the behest and like uh, control of men with godlike powers, as as we've been discussing with Charlie X, <laughs> that would have just been the the ultimate kind of like uh, kicking a dead horse is like mm-hmm. having it happen a second time with her in the exact same situation. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, there is something that we haven't really talked about yet, and I I think that's very remiss of us. Um, we really need to talk about William Campbell. What yes. performance! I mean, yeah. to say. Uh, it, this is one of those episodes that um, I think if you didn't understand the casting process, or if you didn't understand what a difference casting the right person can make, like this is this is like the best example you could have. Almost anybody who could play uh, Trelane would make a mess of it. They would either go too far over the top and really go into like pantomime villain territory or they'd try and like dig into some kind of non-existent pathos or or whatever. But William Campbell manages to strike that perfect balance between like the childlike glee and enthusiasm between you know, being, a, like I said before, like being a genuine threat and also just utterly ludicrous. It's it's not something, I think it's fair to say, um, that every character actor could manage to pull off. And yet, William Campbell is utterly captivating in this role, flouncing around the place in, in sideburns you could get lost in. And a, <laughs> a, a, a costume that's clearly just been pulled from props. Um, but right. you know, like everything about him is so perfect in this role. I just love his performance here. My favorite detail about like the the balance that he strikes is apparently at the very end when the parents arrive and he like he starts crying. He was gonna do he was doing like this ranting, raving thing at first, and then of all people, William Shatner goes up to him and says, "Hey, why don't you tone it down a little?" And, <laughs> and, and that's how he got to like the more pathetic approach that's in the final episode. Uh, I just, for me, I think what works is just the amount of pure commitment and dedication mm. and just genuine sort of uh, kind of passion that goes into any sort of mode he can be in is, I think, what sells it uh, in the sense that when he is being almost kind of a, in a lot of ways, a joke and just kind of having these very petty obsessions and uh, obsessed with all these like bygone relics of uh, an era long past, like 
it's that kind of his commitment to that and the ways in which he's like giving himself all to that, that really sort of defines it. But then he can turn that on a switch. And then when he's throwing those tantrums or upset at one of the crew members and really kind of doling out these threats, he's channeling the same sort of thing into how he's going about it. And it, I think it really shows it's the ways in which he really kind of locks into either of those modes that allows it for it to, for both of them to exist at the same time. Yeah, I also love um, when I when we started watching the episode. It had it had it had been a while. So like it had been literally eight years. So when his his accent first pops up, I'm like, okay, not the strongest English accent, but you know that's fine. It's still a great performance. And then it gets to the end, and it's like, oh no, perfect. He's just a <laughs> sh- he's just a, a shitty Anglophile who's also a kid. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Like the 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 choice to drop the accent at the very end is just like the perfect like little cherry on top that brings it all together. Mm-hmm. Or it's like mm-hmm. no, it's just like if 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 a any like American cultural like Eurocentrist cultural fetishist were also five. It's perfect. Yeah, he does just have such like range and energy, and he's bouncing all over the place. And it, he's like maybe the best guest star the show has had, give or take uh, the Romulans in Balance of Terror. At this place to this point. It's just such a commanding performance, and you need that for this episode to work. <laughs> so I'm glad it is. But yeah, it's I, I JJ, you were saying you can't imagine the episode without him because it would just it's too easy to play too over the top or to just get the balance off. Instead, it is a perfect little thing what he's doing here. And it is the perfect foil for Kirk for Shatner to give a more subdued performance against. <laughs> um, yeah, it's you need someone bringing that energy to sort of almost cow him down. I will say I do want to see the version where Shatner decides to out ham him. I want to see that episode. <laughs> yeah. well. But do you though? <laughs> it's like a, a bonus feature. You know, it's like the it's like the disc where they have the remastered special effects. You can just like toggle between the original <laughs> cut and the Shatner cut. It's funny you mentioned the special effects actually, because um they're, they're sort of weirdly noticeable in this episode. Um it's something I wish I'd talked about more when we were doing our episode on um the Galileo 7, because generally speaking, I think um, the remastered effects are done with a lot of reverence, and I think generally speaking, mm-hmm. they're they're quite good. Um, that's not true of the Galileo Seven, where I think they're appalling. Um, I really, they're oh no, they're so bad. They're just everything about them is just dreadfully misjudged. But I've missed my chance to talk about that, so oh well, never mind. Um, but here, like you get those little lightning flashes on the planet which is meant to convince us that it's this like stormy hellscape where, you know, nothing can ever survive except for this little oasis where, where Trelane has built his, his environment. I really hate them. It really, (laughs) every time I see that, especially when they're like, with that whole sequence where the enterprise is like trying to escape the planet and then the planet like sweeps back into view and you get these little lightnings. Like every time I see them, just don't do that. It, and it, it's it's the reason that it irks me so, for it irks me so, um, is because I hate revisionism. Um, and it feels right. like it's rewriting history. Like, there's no way you could have achieved that with 1960s technology. And I understand um, sort of the necessity for having the, like, the redone digital special effects because apparently the originals couldn't be scaled up to 4K or something, although that feels weird because I assume they would have been shot in film. But anyway, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a, not that sort of into the weeds of it. But anyway, fine. 
we have to put up with digital effects. But I, I really dislike that kind of rewriting a history. There's no way that you could have achieved that with, uh, with 1960s technology. So I don't really think it should be there now. I think it's incredibly mm -hmm. kind of disrespectful in a way to the people that worked in the original series. It's the same, um, uh, that you have the, uh, you know, the, uh, special editions of Star Wars. I, I find them incredibly disrespectful. Same with Doctor Who. Some Doctor, Doctor Who DVD releases also kind of redid the special effects. Um, and it's the same thing. It just feels so disrespectful to the original. And those lightning flashes, I realize I've massively over-explained this. I do apologize. Uh, but no, those, li totally cool. those, those lightning flashes, like that's the perfect example. Don't do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like when I when I watched these for the first time when I was a kid, you know, the, the DVD only had the option for remastered. So this is actually this run is my first time through watching with the original effects because on the Blu-ray you can have they have the original in like restored and in the episodes. And it's it's honestly watching watching them with the original effects intact, it's really impressive like just how solid they are for the like, of course they're like, you know, janky and cheesy and whatever but like for a 60s television show that had a television budget they were doing some strong work with opticals and models and all that sort of thing and it's it's like a heroic effort and i'm glad that with the with the advent of the blues they would put that back instead of just making the the remastered ones the only option like i do agree that the remastered cg is like it tries to maintain a feel but yeah that kind of erasure is i'm really not cool with it and i'm glad that we now have the chance to see it the way that it was yeah especially as we were talking about earlier i think it's it's really a testament to showing how much you can do with like what the capabilities were in, in the 1960s and what the capabilities were with this kind of a budget for television stuff uh one of the things we didn't talk about which i've been thinking about as we've been having this conversation is the very brief like all of three second cutaway it has when uh trelane uh teleports kirk into like the poisonous areas of the planet and it's just basically a, a fog machine on like what seems <laughs> to be like a mostly kind of barren or reused set and that's like that gets across all you need because that's all that really is needed to get across the effect of that instance before it gets like transported back into the main set like i i think the to me a lot of the strengths of the show tend to be when it does things like that and when it really is able to show you how much it's able to get across with that uh i haven't talked about this yet but i just full co-sign you guys covered it all <laughs> yeah i also just find it <laughs> as you said disrespectful of like the hard work put into this like it took a lot of work to do effects in the 60s and to just overwrite it with like not even great looking computer effects it just feels so i mean yeah sometimes it's fine for what it is but yeah, it's it's so annoying when it doesn't look fine for what it is, and when it when it just sticks out like a sore thumb, it's it's just really obnoxious. I think. I mean, it's obnoxious. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I, it's obnoxious when it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb too, and I have to realize it. But it's especially when it sticks out. Yeah, I think my least favorite instance of that is like you know the CG ship shots, like whatever. If you're gonna have a remastered version, then fine. But the right. the one that really sticks in my craw is when like they take matte paintings and just replace them with worse digital matte paintings. <laughs> um like i mm -hmm. i forget that there's one episode in particular i forget which one but like it's it's like a completely different color palette and everything and it's like well at that point you're just like switching your desktop wallpaper because you feel like it like that's not doing anything to to increase the fidelity of the visuals you're just changing one painting for another and it's it's really just like it feels like a, a blend of you know trying to trying to be respectful and then just the arbitrary a uh, 10 which is really like well why would you do that 
there's one element of this episode that we haven't talked about yet that, uh, not to change course, but that I, I really particularly love. And that's, um, I feel like the, the Kirk and Spock dynamic doesn't really get like a ton of space in this episode, but, um, they mostly get like their individual moments to shine, but because of just the, the way the episode is formatted, they're not really conversing as much as they are in say some other episodes. But, um, I, I love the way this episode like puts its own twist on the kind of like bridge codas that it's doing. Uh, I think the final kind of uh, exchange from both of them is like the perfect kind of comedic note to end the episode on that is reinforcing its themes, but it's also like, it, it feels very much a condensation of so many ways that the two of them are as characters and the dynamic between each other and the the different ways that they're approaching this situation and their own familiarity or lack thereof of it uh kirk making that that joke about uh all these like childish things that trelane is emblematic of and spock just expressing nothing but just like complete confusion over what kirk means is just such a great kind of capper to the episode yeah, and like especially like the the scale of his confusion. It's like <laughs> it, it, he hasn't been that confused since the well Vulcan has no moon. Like he's just he's he's just <laughs> like I know I'm being made fun of, but I don't quite understand how. This is upsetting. <laughs> yeah, and and if we're talking about uh the different actors faces and reactions to those moments, I feel like Nimoy is like doing some all-time work there with his just incredulity and the ways that he's just kind of like widening his eyes in trying to process what just happened it's it, it, an impeccable bit of acting on his part yeah if kelly doesn't do as much to get as much to do it's, it's very funny that like kelly is is there in the first bit and then like as soon as the booze is served he just sort of goes like <laughs> well i'm just gonna accept my fate nothing i can do yeah. here and then the rest of the episode he's either off screen or just like sitting and drinking yeah but apparently drinking something with no flavor um, which again is a nice a, a nice little touch. That's a nice yeah. little flavor of something, um, or lack of flavor of something, I suppose. But <laughs> it's a nice little detail, and I I also kind of really like the idea that McCoy and then two randos are just sent to the planet because they're the best people for the job. It's not often that we get to see that because we, we will mm -hmm. very quickly just default into Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and then someone who will die. But this time we have a landing party who are being sent down because they're actually the best specialists for the job. And like Scotty says, oh, I want to go down and he's told no. That's almost unique in Star Trek. It's very unusual that we get a landing party which is specifically constructed for the scenario that they're supposed to be going into rather than, you know, like Kirk trying to front it out with his bravado or Spock because he's like the second character in the show. Um, I really appreciate that kind of attention to detail. And then poor McCoy, as soon as he gets into the castle, he sees the salt monster statue just standing there. He's like, nope. Yeah, that's just taunting him now. Yeah. I, I, I'm apparently it was like it was like a deliberate callback there, which is which is funny. But like when I first watched it, I was like, oh, they had so little budget, they just threw in one of the old aliens as a statue. That's hilarious. I'm um, kind of wish it I, had been that. I think in this case, it's two things. I think it's both a callback, but also we've got this thing and that means that we don't have to build another like monster costume right. so yeah in this th this case it's two things who do you think like got the monster co monster co like when they auctioned off the salt monster what fan <laughs> do you think just has that in their basement now <laughs> mm, hope it's being well cared for i, 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 I saying... take great care of it don't worry <laughs> 
I was just saying, um, there's also a bird from the cage in there. Just a little tidbit I found as well. Um, so yeah, a couple reused props around that castle, which is yeah, do what you got to do. Well, I think we're probably moving towards our our sort of conclusions, final thoughts, and scores. So, um, Abby and Natalie, um, any final thoughts, and what score would you like to give this episode? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go eight. I think this is definitely, like I said, one of the highlights of the first season, and despite quibbles i think it is just a very a very probably the strongest that this kind of episode ever got in this series you know the the whole we're going to confront god thing had diminishing returns even before final frontier you know with plato's stepchildren and and all that stuff but this is like probably where it was at its peak and it's just a a smoothly oiled machine and it's a delight to watch and it flies by so one of the highlights of the of the first season for me yeah, very similarly, I think I'm also going to go eight. It is a, a very fun episode with a very memorable central performance that uh, is doing a lot, as we've talked about, juggling a number of different ideas and tones, but manages to do it without really ever kind of stumbling. And when it does, it is usually mercifully brief and uh, kind of more in brief diversions. But for the most part, it just... it goes right along it's a very just fast-paced constantly eventful episode and i think it's giving a lot of its cast a lot of great moments to shine fantastic thank you kev what do you want to give it i agree with all those points but i'm gonna go one higher with nine and wow my my scale is like a little shifted more positive or maybe it's just i don't know i just really like this episode and just looking at all the other episodes that given eights or nines this definitely feels more than with a nine i just had a great time watching it i think it was very well constructed and for all the reasons we talked about yeah it's it's top to bottom a really good time okay excellent um i'm gonna split the difference and go for eight and a half because i know how much you love it when i give things uh half points um it's just yeah it i mean you know basically just all you said but i'm giving it half a point less it's just such a fun episode uh there's a couple of logic holes in it but nothing that really takes away it's a bit of a shame that uh ahura isn't given a slightly more proactive role in it but overall it's just generally such a such an easy episode to get swept up in. William Campbell is brilliant. And the whole thing is just, it manages to carry itself off with a sort of uh, je ne sais quoi, which uh, Star Mm. Trek will try and recapture with various degrees of success in the future. But like, if you have to have a godlike alien in Star Trek, this is the best possible example you could have of that. And I think with that, we can probably move on to our recommendations. So, Abby and Natalie, you're our guests this week. So would you care to give us our recommendations? Yeah. So right now I'm in the middle of the novel How to Be Both by Ali Smith, which is great. Uh, for those who don't know, Ali Smith is a, a Scottish novelist and short story writer who's done some, some of my favorite books. Um, and this book, what's notable about it is um, it is it is a narrative in two halves, one set in the current day and one set in the 1400s. And depending on which copy of the book you pick up, you will get one or the other first because they were printed at random uh, to make for a different reading experience, depending on how it is read. Um, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun and I'm very much enjoying it. So there is my rec. Uh, and to go with a uh, similar currently reading situation with me, uh, I have finally gotten around to uh image and biddy's nevada uh which is i know for so many people has been like a very formative uh trans novel uh but for me it's uh it's it was something i picked up 
ages ago had started to read and i think part of it was certain things were too close to uh current experience but then also part of it was there was a little bit of a detachment from where i was at that given point in life and so revisiting it now where it's like i it it feels very close and real in a lot of ways that uh feel very real to me as like somebody who's like on the cusp of like her 30s and in this particular situation but it's also just so compulsively readable the the prose is just very sort of it feels bracing but also never really uh never really putting you at arm's length and really just kind of stringing you along and it's very easy to get swept up in the entire thing so i've been very much enjoying that fantastic thank you very much kev what have you got for us this week so I just finished the second of a currently two novel series, novella series that will hopefully keep expanding, uh, Becky Chambers' Monk and Robot uh, series, the first of which is Psalm for the Wild Built, and the second of which just came out this year is Prayer for the Crown Shy. Uh, these are fantastic little books. Uh, they're both around 150 to pages, maybe a little more than that, but not much. And yeah, they are about a world some fictional planet that has gone through industrial revolution that nearly killed it. And then all the robots awakened and left for the forest and humanity collectively decided to stop relying on advanced technology. I think it also stopped working. Can't quite remember the world details, but basically they had a return to nature movement and built this sort of utopian society. That sounds familiar for the show we're covering. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a lot of it is this world building about this like utopian society and how they built it, how they stay connected to nature and how they avoid their technology from going to, from expanding too much. But the core character drama of the both books is there is this monk called Dex. They, their main purpose or job, I should say, is to serve tea to people and listen to their problems, a sort of therapist in this world. But they have sort of lost the passion for helping out other people like this. They go on a wilderness expedition without much purpose or goal, just to sort of snap out of a depressive funk. And they meet a robot. Um, and that robot, uh, they get to know each other very well. And it's the first robot who's come in contact with humans since the sort of awakening and migration away from human settlements. Um, and there's just a lot of thought of like construction of how these characters think, how they would interact with each other, what their differences are, and how they come to understand each other's point of views. Um, the ideas of like depression and self-worth and just sort of coming to terms with yourself are big running themes in both books. And it does such a good job with these sort of internal monologues of this main character, Dex, who is like such a great character. I've really connected to them. They are fantastic. Um, yeah, it both books. And then the first book is mostly about just the two characters. The second book, minor spoilers, I suppose, is about the robot meeting sort of the rest of humanity that's around and trying to learn from them. And yeah, it's just very good. It's just very nurturing reading, I should say. It's like it feels like dr drinking a bowl of soup. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's just that kind of very soft and gentle, easy book, but one that still will ask hard questions. That still have like very emotional turning points. But if you want something that's not 
very external conflict heavy and something that just feels very like nourishing to read, then I would highly recommend a Psalm for the Wild built in prayer for the crown shy. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I'm also going to be recommending a book. So we're being a very literary podcast this week. Um, I'm going to recommend There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job uh, by Kakumo Sumura. Uh, it's, a, as you might gather from the name, it's a translation of a Japanese book um, about a woman who takes uh, increasingly strange and surreal jobs. It's a deeply fascinating, very funny and, and very sarcastic book. And it's very much about kind of uh, labor about individual people's worth in in employment. Uh, it's very much about the modern workplace in a way which is maybe uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to draw a direct comparison with anything in particular. Uh, it's very much its own thing, but it it's just got such a beautiful sense of the world and how the world works. Uh, it's so wrapped up in uh, the absurdity of the world. It's maybe. I think the closest parallel I can think of is Severance, the Apple TV show. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's not a million miles away from that, and yet it's not really like that at all. Uh, it's uh, it's just its own thing. It's got very curious cadences and rhythms to it. Uh, the language is absolutely exquisite. It's it's a, just linguistically alone. It's just such a beautiful piece of writing, and it's it's. It's also one of those books where it's slightly frustrating to recommend because I don't want to say too much about it. It's one of those books which is just best experience. But for anyone who's ever had an office job, for anyone who just doesn't understand why the world works in the way that it does, uh, it has this weird, unsettling energy to it, and yet it's so honest and true. It's just such a, a wonderful, wonderful piece of writing. I won't say any more about it, but just I cannot recommend it highly enough. So that's, uh, yeah, there's no such thing as an easy job uh, by Kakumo Sumura. All right. All of those sound so fantastic. <laughs> Keep an eye out for all of those and hopefully read them someday. Fantastic. Well, I think we can probably start to draw a veil over things as we move towards our conclusion. Abby and Natalie, is there anything that you would care to plug or anything else that you want to uh, put out there? Um, I am do not have many pluggable things in the works <laughs> at the moment, um, but you can always follow me on Twitter at GoodHunterAbby. Um, I have not posted there much for the last like six <laughs> months, but maybe I will again someday. Who knows? Uh, likewise, I'm at uh, Natalie's Not In It. Um, with me, I'm trying to think about when this is probably going to be out. And by that point, uh, I think the only thing that I'll have out that's new to be able to plug is uh, I'll probably have uh, some lists of uh, contributing to year end best albums things that I have written some words on. So if, if it's out at that point, great. If not, Probably not. <laughs> um, yeah, I believe this episode is coming out uh, March-ish. Uh, oh. Because, yeah, when this is when we're recording this, we just released The Menagerie. So, yeah, you can look up the archives of what you said about best albums of the year. So, absolutely. In that case, I'll probably have something else that is more recent, uh, but that is still something I'm kind of, at the present moment, keeping like tightly under wraps. But by that point, okay. it'll probably be out in the open. <laughs> I, probably actually February now that I'm doing the math out. If this is 17 and we just released 12, 
Yes. Um, It'll be in 900 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some godlike being will look us up. I also feel it necessary to point out that given how well things are going at Twitter, Twitter is a website which used to exist. I just feel the necessity to say that in case it doesn't by the time this episode is going live. All right. Um, then, yeah, you can find Talking Trek to You at Talk Trek to You. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. I'm also a frequent guest on the podcast, Total Massacre, about action movies, hosted by Rowan Kaiser. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles track by track. And yes, like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcast you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you, Abby and Natalie. It's been lovely to have you along. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this was a delight. Thank you for having us. <laughs> it's absolute pleasure. So we can leave things there for the Squire of Gothos. Next episode, we get to visit an iconic location. We are going to be spending quite a considerable amount of time at Vasquez Rock, but no episode quite manages to capture Vasquez Rock as arena. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.